0: Well, Hebrews is an unusual book. Uh, It's not a life of Christ like the Gospels are. It's not a personal letter like the letter to Philemon is. It's not a history like the book of Acts. It's not an apocalyptic book like Revelation. And it's not even really a letter, at least in the typical sense. Not a letter like Peter or John or Paul would write to churches or pastors. It's really much more like a sermon. And to be sure, it's a very well-crafted sermon. It's written by somebody who was very educated, who was an excellent communicator, but we don't really know for sure who wrote it. I think Hebrews was written by a pastor. And I think the pastor was concerned about his congregation, so he wrote this for his congregation while he may have been in prison in the, uh, toward the end of the book of Hebrews, the authors asked for prayer from the people he wrote to so that he would be restored to them soon. Many scholars believe that Hebrews was written to Christians in Rome, probably, mostly, primarily Jewish Christians. It was likely written in the mid-60s, and w- within memory of, of the expulsion of Jews from Rome by the Emperor Claudius in 49 AD. And it would have been all Jews, including believing Jews, like Priscilla and Aquila. And there was persecution that came with it, and there was persecution that came after it, after the expulsion was lifted. And at the time of writing, things were getting worse for believers. And it wouldn't be long until Nero began his brutal persecution of Christians in 68 A.D. So I said I think Hebrews is a sermon. And I think it's a sermon that shows who Jesus Christ is. And based on that, there is exhortation, encouragement, even warning. Generally the structure of Hebrews is that there's some teaching about who Jesus is and then there's some exhortation or encouragement, and then there's more teaching about who Jesus is, and then there's more exhortation or encouragement, and so on. But the message of Hebrews is a call to persevere and not to give up and not to drift away while under persecution. And to try and give us some uh, a picture of the context of what might have been going on during that time, I'd like to re- read a bit of historical fiction I'm indebted to uh, Dr. George Guthrie on his, from his commentary on Hebrews for this. And it's about a fellow named Antonius. So sit back, enjoy, try not to go to sleep as I read this. Antonius sat alone in a deteriorating second-story apartment located on a slum on the slope of Esquiline Hill in Rome. As rain pelted the age-worn wall outside, a plate of bread and vegetables and a cup of sour wine rested on the makeshift table. The room had turned dark with the coming of the storm, and Antonius lit a small oil lamp against the gloom. With the light, hungry roaches materialized, scampering to the dark safety of the cracks in the wall. In the apartment next door, a baby cried, and the infant's father screamed obscenities at the infant's mother. An urgent conversation rose and faded as an unseen pair of business partners walked down the stairs. Somewhere in the muddy street below, a unit of Roman soldiers marched past, driven under sharp orders from its commander. Antonius sat alone, thinking. That morning, his employer, a rough burly fellow named Brutus, once again turned from the task of pricing fruits and vegetables to ridicule this young Christian. The verbal jabs had become as annoying as gnats darting to and fro in the shop's pungent air. Brutus was big, obnoxious, and cruel. Antonius cringed against the man's emotional blows, wishing he could strike back out of his hurt and embarrassment. Each time he turned the other cheek, it received a slap. Yet he bit his lip, nursed his wounded pride, and again asked the Lord's forgiveness for his thoughts. Persecution of the church in Rome had yet to result in martyrdom, but since the expulsion of Jews under Emperor Claudius, Christians had continued to be harassed to various degrees by both Jews and pagans. Upon the expulsion, some had suffered imprisonment, beatings, and seizure of their properties. That was almost 15 years ago now. Antonius had not been part of the Christian church at the time, but he had heard about the conflict. In fact, his own grandfather, ruler of a local synagogue, had been one of the most outspoken opponents of Christianity. When at 17, Antonius converted to Christianity, the old man almost died, declaring Antonius dead in a shouting match that ended in tears and a tattered relationship. In recent months, abuse of the church had escalated with the amused approval of the emperor himself, and now emotional fatigue was taking its toll. Footsteps in the hall A scream in the night, meaningless events that nevertheless set Antonius' heart racing. He had been told of the cost of following the Messiah, but somehow his experience was different than he had expected. In the beginning, he thought his joy would never be broken, that he would always feel the presence of God. He had been taught in the Lord. He had been taught that Jesus was the righteous judge, would vindicate his new covenant people. Did not the scriptures, speaking of the Messiah, say that God had put all things in subjection under his feet? But the church had taken a great beating lately, and members of the various house groups had become discouraged and were questioning whether Christ was really in control. In their hearts, they wondered if God had closed his ears against their cries for relief. Some, in their disillusionment, doubted and left the church altogether. Antonius Bar David remembered the traditions of the synagogue and the support of the Jewish community, the joy of the festivals, and the solemn celebrations of the Jewish calendar. He appreciated the fellowship of Christ's community, but genuinely missed the traditions of his ancestors, and he missed members of his family. He watched them from a distance as they walked together to market by the Tiber River. Some of them them would still not speak to him and passed him on the street as they would a Gentile. That was very difficult, and today his loneliness closed in around him like a dark, damp blanket. To make matters worse, he was one of the poorer members of the church. When Antonius became a Christian, he lost his job as a tailor's apprentice in the Jewish quarter. He now spent his days sorting rotting produce, sweeping the floor, swatting flies, and receiving orders from obnoxious Roman slaves shopping for their rich mistresses. He stoops so low as to take pieces of rotten fruit home to supplement his meager food supply. Even rich men's slaves fared better. Earlier in the week, Gaius, a kitchen slave of a Roman senator who lived in the area, tossed him a handful of overripe figs, saying, Here, Christian, change your cannibalistic diet by taking a bit of good fruit. Laughter hung in the air along with the gnats. To be poor and a Christian invited double portions of ridicule. Antonius had missed the weekly meal and worship for the past two weeks, and his heart had cooled somewhat toward the little house group. A spiritual itch in the back of his spirit warned him, cautioning him to concerning his loss of perspective, yet in recent days he had begun to snuff such thoughts from his mind as quickly as they came. Antonius' bitterness over his current circumstances was growing and slowly obscuring the truth. That night, believers were to meet for worship and encouragement. Rumor had it that the leaders had received a document from back east somewhere. Although discouraged and tempted to skip the meeting again, Antonius' curiosity was aroused and he decided to travel the short distance to the neighborhood house at which the fellowship was to meet. Entering the gathering room, he spoke greetings to several friends who also looked tired from the day's work. The hostess offered something to drink and some friendly banter, but dejection hung like a cloud over the room. When the meal was finished, the group's leader, a good and Godly man of almost 70 years finally arrived. Joseph was a bit out of breath, having come from a meeting with the other leaders halfway across the city. He was visibly moved as he stood smiling before the group of about 20, his hand shaking slightly from his advancing age. After a few words of introduction, Joseph took a deep breath and explained that he had talked the other leaders into allowing his group the first reading of the scroll. With a twinkle in his eye, the elder said, I believe you'll find this quite relevant. He unrolled the scroll in the first part of the first part of the parchment, and he began reading with vigor. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's pray. Father God, the thing that I pray this morning is that you will help us to see, to see again, how Jesus is greater, greater than anything that can intrude on our lives, greater than any difficulty, greater than any persecution, greater, greater than any ridicule that we may have to endure. And I pray, Father, that because Jesus is greater, we will endure the persecution, we will endure the, the ridicule, and do so with a great and a deep faith. Open our hearts now in your name. Amen. So I don't know how Antonius uh, might have received those words from Hebrews. But Antonius would have seen, as we will see as we go through the book of Hebrews, that several of the themes in the book are encased in those first four verses. Themes like the superiority of of the Son, his relationship with the Father, the Son's lordship over creation, his sacrifice, his position as high priest and Lord, and his exaltation. The author's point is that Jesus is greater. And he, can he list eight ways that Jesus is greater? And I want to briefly, briefly look at each one of those eight ways. Jesus is greater. The first way is that Jesus is God's final word. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. The author demonstrates this point by use of a contrast. He first says that in former times, long ago, and in many different ways, God has spoken. God spoke in many ways to those that came before us, and he spoke to them through the prophets. I think the author uh, has a wide definition of prophets here. Certainly it would include people like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Habakkuk, but I think it must also include people like Moses and Joshua and David. And others through whom God spoke. God has spoken through these prophets. And his speaking is certain. For example, Ezekiel thirty-six, thirty-six. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that, that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. The content of what God spoke, of course, is very important, but I don't think the content is what the author is focusing on here. What he's focusing on here is the mode of speaking or how God spoke. The way God spoke previously, honestly, made it a little hard to see the whole of God's plan. It was certainly possible to put some of the pieces together. Herod's scribes were able to tell where the Messiah would be born. But God spoke this way with a purpose. He spoke this way so that his plan would be revealed piece by piece, and that certain parties, both in the human realm and the spiritual realm, would not be able to know what God was really doing. 1 Corinthians 2, 6-9, Yet among them, sure, we impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified, the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Here's the contrast. God now has spoken in Jesus Christ. The author is not suggesting that the prophets are to be set aside, or what they said is to be set aside. On the contrary, what they said points to Christ. And in fact, the author quotes and alludes to the Old Testament more than just about any other book in the New Testament. The author is using his introduction to highlight the person of the Son of God as the final, and as the fullest, and as the clearest, and as the best revelation. In these last days, he says, he has spoken to us in Son. Many translations say in his Son, and some translations say in a Son, but the word his, the word a, is not there in the Greek. It simply says, in son. That's how the Greek puts it. To force a focus on the person of Christ. The revelation that Jesus spoke, well, I should say the revelation is in what Jesus spoke. John eight twenty-eight, And Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak, just as the Father taught me. And it's in what Jesus has done. John ten seventeen. for this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. So Jesus is greater because he's God's final word. And then Jesus is heir of all. Hebrews 1, 2, whom he appointed, the heir of all things. Jesus is greater because God has appointed Jesus as heir of everything. This speaks to Jesus' position, and to his responsibility. As to position, Jesus holds the deed to all of creation and all of life. This inheritance came to Christ because of his work on the cross and the resurrection and his triumphing, triumphing over his enemies. Psalm 2, 6-8. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage or your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. And then Colossians two thirteen through 15, And you who were dead in your trespasses and in, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgotten, forgiven all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This leads us to Christ's responsibility as heir. As inheritor, Christ holds the responsibility of sharing his inheritance. Christ will share the riches of his inheritance with all those who believe. Another fate waits those who oppose Christ. But for those who believe, for you who believe, we get to share in Christ's inheritance. Romans eight seventeen, And if children, then heirs, Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. We are fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. The next way Jesus is greater is He's because he is creator of all. Again, Hebrews 1-2, through whom he also created the world. Jesus is greater because he created the universe. Now, we know that God created the universe and everything in it. Psalm 148, 1 through 5. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For He commanded and they were created. But we also know that Jesus created. And Jesus even brings eternal life. John 1. 1 through 4, in the beginning was the Word, which, of course, references Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Christ as creator shows his supremacy over all the creation and all that is in it, including the spiritual realm. As Christ, As creator, Christ is Lord. Overall. All of creation is subordinate to him and all of creation will bow before him. This is the creator in whom we have our life and we have our being and through whom we will be welcomed into the Father's kingdom. Believers, get this, believers have a personal relationship with the creator of the universe. Jesus is greater because he shows God and because He he is God, Hebrews one three. He is the radiance of God, the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is greater because he shows us who God is, and he is greater because he is God. The author of Hebrews says Jesus is God by making two points. First, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. We talked about this about a year ago in another sermon. Another way to say this is to say that Jesus shows the brilliant brightness of God's glory. This is not reflection. Jesus is God's glory. When we think of glory, we often think of light. And certainly God is light, but that's only one aspect of his glory. God's glory, one commentator said, is the manifestation of the perfection of all his attributes and all his works. We see God's glory in the act of creation. We see God's glory in a sunset or a sunrise. We see God's glory when we discover a new species. We see God's glory in the colorful brilliance of a Gordian finch or a red panda. We see God's glory in the crystal blue waters of Hawaii. Creation manifests God's glory. Isaiah 6.3 says, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. But we also see God's glory in Jesus himself. John 1:14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we see God's glory in the grace of salvation. Romans 5, 1 and 2, Therefore, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace through God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The author of Hebrews states that Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. The Greek here uses the idea of stamping a coin to show the imprint and the likeness of the image that is to be represented, but Christ is not just an image. He's not just a picture. He's not representing God like an ambassador. Rather, Christ is the exact nature and character of God. When you read about Christ, the person you read about is God. When you see the character of Christ, what you see is the character of God. When you see the acts of Christ, you see the acts of God. Philip, the disciple, came to Jesus one day, and he said, Jesus, show us the Father. Jesus mildly rebuked him. He said, had you been with me so long that you don't know who I am? He said that the person who has seen him, Jesus, has seen God. Jesus is greater because he holds everything together. Hebrews one three, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is greater because he holds everything in the universe together. Scientists make um, a lot of discovering how things work, everything from physical processes to the life cycle of a bee. We discover these things and we pat ourselves on the back as to how clever we are having discovered them, but we rarely realize that all we have discovered, all we have seen, all that's around us is maintained and has its life and power Because of Christ's powerful word, which holds it all together, a baby is dependent on her parents. The parents are dependent on a business or a company to provide them employment, so that they can have money to feed their baby. The parents are dependent on Wegmans, or Tops, or Aldi's, or wherever. California used to shop at Alpha Beta. Parents are dependent on that because they need food to buy, and they depend on the store for food. I am dependent on the AMC theater, movie theaters in Webster to have very nice, very soft, powerful recliners that I can sit in while I'm watching a movie. All of these and everything depend mostly unknowingly on the word of Christ to sustain them. Whatever you depend on is sustained by Christ's powerful word. The word "word" here is not the Greek word logos, but it's the Greek word rhema, which means statement. Most of the time, this kind of a statement has an effect. And it's most often associated with God and Christ. John six sixty It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are, of sp- are spirit and life. The words of Christ have effect. To sustain here includes the idea of more than just holding something together with glue. I used some crazy glue yesterday to put two things together. I haven't checked it since I put them together, so I'm hoping they're stuck. But this expresses the idea that of the movement toward an appointed end. It's just not a matter of holding something together. It's a matter of holding something together because there's a purpose to it. Christ's upholding of everything has the purpose of the completion of God's will for human beings, which leads us to the next item. Jesus is greater because he finished purification, Hebrews 1 3, after making purification for sins. We just spoke of the idea that Jesus holding everything together was more than acting like glue. The sustaining has an appointed end. This phrase expresses that purpose, the work of Christ on the cross. On the cross, we, the word translated making includes the idea of accomplishing or completing. Jesus declared on the cross that it is finished. What was finished, as the author says, was a cleansing of pure or purification for sins. This is a work only Christ could do. It was only by his blood that purification could be accomplished. Some versions translate the Greek word katharimos as cleansing. I like that the ESV translates it as purification because it emphasizes the, cer- the ceremonial nature of the sacrifice of Christ, pointing toward the Old Testament sacri- sacrificial system that only covered sin. Christ is the Lamb of God who was sacrificed, but unlike lambs sacrificed in the Old Testament, Christ offered himself up by his own choice unlike the Old Testament cer- ceremony of sin sacrifice this purification that Christ accomplished was once for all Hebrews 10:10 10, 10. and by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all this offer that Christ gave points to his ministry as our high priest the Hebrew the author of Hebrews makes a lot of this for example in Hebrews 2:17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And then Jesus is greater because he has all authority. Hebrews 1.3 again, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. <clears throat> majesty here is a reference to God. On high means the place or really the realm where God reigns, and right hand is the position of authority. The author is not thinking about a throne room. He's not thinking about a throne, but he's thinking about authority. Jesus is greater because he has all authority. In this phrase, the author alludes to Psalm 110.1, which says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The author will quote and allude to Psalm 110 a lot in Hebrews. But the point he's making here is that Christ is now in a position of authority based on his sacrifice, based on his work on the cross. He has this position of authority. And based on this sacrifice, all will see and confess that Jesus is Lord and every knee will bow to him, as it says in Philippians 2. Christ himself spoke of his position of authority when he spoke ironically to the high priest Caiaphas at his trial. Matthew twenty six sixty four. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's the first point the author makes. The second point is one we've already mentioned, that Jesus is our high priest. Psalm 110, 1 through 4. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in, uh, in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus exercises his authority as our high priest. The author will make much of this as we go through the book of Hebrews. For example, in Hebrews 8, 1-2, again the author refers to Psalm one ten one. He says, Now the point in what we are saying is this, that we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven a minister in the holy places, in the tent that the Lord set up, not man. The ministry Jesus says, or performs as our high priest in the tabernacle that God set up is to stand for those who believe him, believe in him, for the purpose of representing us to the Father as those who believe, and because of Christ's sacrifice, as those who are worthy of being in God's family, <clears throat> and then finally Hebrews one four, having become much as much superior to angels as the name has he he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This concluding statement. And the author's introduction to a sermon is to make plain that Jesus is greater. The comparison here is to angels. The author mentions angels in part because that's his next point in showing how Christ is greater than the angels in verses 5 through 14. Caleb will deal with that next week. But the author also chooses angels for the comparison because some Jews regarded angels as the highest beings next to God. Jesus is greater than the angels and greater than everything else because of all the things the author has just spoken of. Jesus is greater because he's God's final word, because Jesus is heir of all things, because Jesus is creator, because Jesus is God, because Jesus sustains the universe and everything in it, because Jesus completed purification for our sins, and because Jesus has all authority. This is a point that Jesus made himself at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, there is no angel or any created thing that can compare to Jesus. Jesus is greater. So, what does all this mean? Well, I think there are three things, at least three things that we can consider in regards to The fact that Jesus is greater. First is the idea of theology for life. These first four verses in Hebrews are packed with theology. Theologians use the term Christology to uh, describe when we study about who Christ is. But the author of Hebrews is not teaching a theology class, he is rather using this theology about Christ as foundation for practical living. The author of Hebrews wants to encourage. And he wants to give strength to his readers as they face life, sometimes under difficult circumstances, sometimes in persecution, so that they will persevere based on knowing who Christ is and knowing that he's greater than anything they may suffer, including persecution. Knowing the theology of who Jesus is gives us reason and motivation to persevere. Secondly, worship. When Jesus encountered the woman at the well in Samaria... You might remember this. Jesus talked to her about himself as being living water. She didn't like this idea because of what it might have meant for her. So she tried to deflect the argument by talking about, well, we Samaritans believe that the place to worship is on Mount Gerizim in Samaria, but you Jews believe it's in Jerusalem. Jesus told the woman that the place of worship is not important. But what was important was the way people worship. Jesus said to her that God seeks those who worship him in spirit and in truth. To worship in spirit is to worship not based on external forms or rituals or positions or places, but from the heart of the worshiper out of his or her relationship with God. The point I want to make here, though, is that to worship in truth is to worship as God has revealed himself. Not on some caricature, caricature we sometimes uh, make up or that other people make up about what we think God is like. I heard somebody say they thought that God was like a river, that he was deep and wide and flowing. In Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, in many other scriptures, we see who Christ is because of what he, what he has done. Worship Christ for who he is. Worship Christ for what he has done. And if you need a place to start, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 is a good place. And then finally, along with the author's purpose for the book of Hebrews, I would encourage you not to pull back. The author of Hebrews uses the term, do not drift away. Our fictional story about Antonius reflected real life for many believers in his day and in our day. The believers that Hebrews was written to were suffering persecution. It was not the kind of persecution that threatened their lives. That was still to come. But they were nevertheless being persecuted for believing in Christ and acting on that belief. As a young believer, I was persecuted by my stepfather for my faith in Christ. The Persecution wasn't physical, although the threats of violence were present. It was mostly ridicule and invective. My stepfather said many things to me. Nothing here that I could repeat. But it hurt. And it stung. And like Antonius, I was discouraged by it. Now, I enjoyed being with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I enjoyed going to church. I enjoyed going to groups. I loved worshiping with them. I loved learning about the scriptures with them. I loved serving with them. I loved gaining strength from them. But it would have been easier and certainly much less painful If I did not spend so much time with those people. If I didn't act so much on my belief in Christ. If I just talked less about it. So I wouldn't have to be constantly ridiculed and shamed for my faith, even in my own home. I didn't consider giving up my faith. But I did want to pull back. I did want to drift away from it a little. Like in Antonius, it would have been easier to go to church less, to go to group less. It would have been easier to do less. It would have been easier to say less and to keep my faith private. The writer of Hebrews knew that the people he wrote to, the people whom he loved, the people who he knew were suffering persecution, may have been tempted to pull back from their faith a little, like me. He wrote the book to encourage them not to pull back to not drift away, but to live their lives in full faith, unabashed and unafraid, because Jesus Christ is greater even over persecution of any kind. And I think this takes another tack as well. It's when we think about sharing our faith in Christ. I think sometimes we may be reluctant to do that because the person we share our faith with may attack us or may ridicule us or may ask a question that we can't answer. The writer of Hebrews would encourage you, talk to them anyway. Share what Jesus Christ has done in your life. And if there's some ridicule to go along with it, all right, be unafraid. I pray that knowing Jesus, that Jesus is greater, will encourage you not to pull back. Let's pray. Father, sometimes it's difficult as we live our lives here on earth, our day-to-day lives, to see and to realize that you, Jesus, are greater. Greater than anything, greater certainly than the ridicule or the persecution we might suffer from other feet other people. I pray, Lord, that remembering that you are greater will give us that sense of being unafraid and that sense of saying, Jesus is greater. What can really harm me? And to go forward in full faith, speaking of you, worshiping you, sharing who you are. And if there's some ridicule and, per- and persecution involved, then to, we accept it with gladness, as the disciples did, knowing that it is you who are leading us and knowing that you are greater. In Jesus' name, amen.